So you've decided to give up that old behavior that's been killing you and all you care for and surrender to a power greater than yourself. That's the first step. Surrender is what opens the prison door. Now it's time to walk through that door and into a whole new way of life. Spirituality, self-care, service, social connection, and the simple daily disciplines that pave the way to lasting freedom. This is Positive Sobriety. Welcome to another episode of the Positive Sobriety Podcast. I'm Nate Larkin, uh, still checking in from uh, exile uh, or vacation, however you want to uh, describe it, <laughs> in, in Florida. Here with my good friend, co-host David Hampton. Hello. <laughs> yeah, I feel sorry for anybody who came to Florida this week for vacation uh, uh, because, oh, the weather has descended. You know, we've had some beautiful time, uh, some beautiful weather here, David, but it, at least for the next week, if the forecasts are to be believed, uh, you know, the idyllic Florida weather is gone and we're in for oh, wind and rain. And uh, so, yeah, I'm sitting at right now, uh, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's pretty gray outside. Yeah. Well, so, so, but you know what, mm, Nate, Allie, when I go to Florida and it rains like that, there is always yeah. something, even even if I have to stay in the condo and watch Netflix, yeah. it yeah. still feels like Florida as opposed to like at home. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't know what it is about Florida Netflix as opposed to, you know, Nashville home Netflix. But do you do that? I mean, like, so you're rained in, what do you guys do oh, uh, it? It will be, it will be Netflix. It will. Uh, in fact, you know, we've been here, I, I'm almost ashamed to say it, we've been here for five weeks already. So <laughs> there has been, there has been some Netflix. Uh -huh. uh, in fact, we just, we just wrapped, uh, the fourth season, the latest season of the crown. We watched it start to finish. Uh. We, we watched the first couple of seasons years ago. Allie didn't remember at all. So, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, that's one of the joys of aging, right? Everything's yeah, new. It's all new. But, uh. Yeah. Yeah, it's all new. Uh, I tell you what, we got so immersed in yeah. the life of the royal family. I, I dreamed about it at night. Oh, my gosh. You have a tea yeah. with the queen or something? What were you doing? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. It was, you know, it was me and Churchill and then me and Maggie Thatcher. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> you guys playing Twisters? What? What were you guys doing? Uh, yeah, I don't I, I, <laughs> I don't remember. Everything. All I know, I got I got super deep into the family. Yeah, and uh, and and alternating in my feelings uh, uh, toward members of you know of oh, the yeah. royal family, like yeah. poor Charles. I mean, oh. uh, uh, sympathy and then admiration and then anger and then disgust. Yeah. And I do understand that this, as you know, the writer and director and producer have said over and over in interviews, this is fiction. Um, so I, I, I'm sure that the, the real dynamics in the Royal family are not exactly those portrayed on screen. However, 
<laughs> yeah. It's familiar it's familiar enough because yeah. every family has drama and there are layers to every relationship. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, it, it's interesting to me. I, I love, love the crown and I, I binged out that season as well. This last mm-hmm. season, I, I mean, we yeah, yeah. just like didn't come up for air. We just boom, next, next, yeah, next. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. But, um, yeah, yeah. there were so many things that the queen said that I'm sure, you know, are paraphrases or maybe not yeah. ever said at all, but that indicated that somewhere she had to, I don't know if bargaining with herself is the right word, Mm -hmm. but she had to come to some resolutions that were very, very hard, you know, um, in her life about duty and about, um, staying in situations and about what you do and don't, um, expect from life. And, you know, and she kind of, whether intentionally or not, you know, just pass those on, uh, you know, in the family, it seems, uh, that, yeah. you know, this is, this is not about you, you know? And if you think yeah. there was one line that where she said, if you think for one minute that anybody, anybody cares what you particularly think about anything, you are mistaken. Yeah. yeah you know, yeah, she yeah, was saying this yeah. to Charles, you know, yeah, I think yeah, after she yeah, told him yeah. that you know he was born into an obscene amount of privilege and he was an ungrateful whatever you know um, yeah, yeah yeah but you know that conversation was like you're mistaking yourself for an individual here you're not you know yeah. and I thought oh my uh, gosh if you had that kind of hovered over you and the and the uh, the public scrutiny and the duty and the whole whatever I mean I, you know why would you not yeah. Just yeah, yeah, emotionally be checked out. I don't know, but yeah, that's it, right, that's right. And you've got to hide every emotion, and publicly you have to hide every opinion. Even privately, you have to hide every emotion. And then to see, you know, poor Diana dropped mm-hmm. into that family system mm-hmm. with her own wounds and fragilities, mm-hmm. and not being able to uh, get any emotional needs met. Oh my. Yeah, you just almost it, see it yeah. doomed from the start in a way, you know. Yeah, it's, yeah, um, yeah. It's just very, very hard. Um, but uh, yeah, those those folks. I mean, I wonder if there's a royal therapist on call. <laughs> 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 right. She rings the little bell, and he comes running, and they sit on the couch for a while. I don't know. I don't know if there isn't, there should be, I suppose. <laughs> Come in handy. You know, I, 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 you know who I would nominate for the job is our guest for the week. I bet you would. And, and, and I, qualified she is. Yeah. I think she could handle the Royal family. I really do. <laughs> yeah. And I, I'd, I'd be interested. I'd be interested to know whether our listeners agree uh, when they've had a chance to hear Terry Murphy. Yeah. Okay, so uh, 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 listen up, and 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 uh, and later on, tell us what you think. We'll be back in a moment on the Positive Sobriety Podcast. The 
Welcome back to the Positive Sobriety Podcast. And David, once again, you have tapped your extensive network of friends and contacts and <laughs> friends of friends. And, you, and you've brought us another stellar guest. Would you uh, introduce Terry Murphy to our audience? I will. Dr. Terry Murphy is a therapist here in the uh, greater Nashville area, Middle Tennessee area. And um, I've known Terry and her husband for uh, a number of years, but um, Terry's got a really interesting story. And, you know, me, me getting guests sometimes is just haranguing people and calling in favors and begging, (laughs) (laughs) all that kind of stuff, exploiting friends, (laughs) things like that, you know, that I'm not above doing at all. But, um, but I'm really glad to get Terry today because she's got a really diverse background and a really interesting story of how she got into this whole world of uh, working with other people and working with uh, couples and things like that. And so Terry, first of all, welcome. And um, thank you. You know, we're really so pleased to have you, but tell us a little bit about your background and all of that from, um, you know, uh, military to rocket surgery to <laughs> whatever. And uh, so tell us, tell us how you got here. Yeah. Um, thanks so much for having me. I'm, I'm so excited to be here and to, to chat with y'all um, about things that are near and dear to all of our hearts. And I do have kind of a weird path for how I got to therapist. Um, so I did not grow up thinking that this is what I wanted to do. Um, I wanted to be a scientist and possibly a doctor. Mm-hmm. Um, and when I was a freshman in college, I worked as a, a physical therapy assistant and had a patient come in and was like a burn victim. I got so sick. I had to lay down in the hall and I was like, well, maybe physical bodies is not going to be the thing for me. What is kind of <laughs> close? What's kind of close to that? Um, yeah. I actually ended up um, in chemistry, understanding uh, more on a cellular level, the things that were going on. Um, I really enjoyed that. Um, I didn't come from a family where we talked a lot about emotion or were very direct about the ways that we felt. And science actually felt really safe to me. There's a right answer. There is Mm -hmm. a black and white kind of thinking. Um, You can prove and quantify and make sense of the world. And I came out of a good bit of chaos. So making sense of things actually was very, very appealing to me. Um, And it was a way that I really stayed regulated was um, really making sense of the world. Mm. And I loved that. And the military was something I always knew that I wanted to be a part of. My dad was in the Air Force. My dad's dad, my grandfather was in the army and like all the way down our family line, Mm -hmm. people had always served. And so it was just a thing that was very interesting to me. And so I did, I joined the Air Force and I was, I was in I was a propulsion analyst for the Air Force is how I started. So rocket science. Wow. Yeah, that's exactly what we did. And I got to do that for four years out in Los Angeles. And um, one of the things that happened there um, is after I got out of the Air Force, I stayed on for another year and a half as a contractor in the same division that I had worked. But I got to work with all the new lieutenants that got stationed there. They came through a program that we developed. And it was those moments like on break or at lunch, or after work, that they would come and sit with me, and we would just chat and talk about their day. And back then, when I was in the service, um, if you went and saw a therapist, it was just 
part of your record. Like you don't get oh. to keep your medical record private yeah. unless you oh, go and sit yeah. with a chaplain. So everyone would know and you would lose your clearance. And our whole base was top secret SCI clearance. And so if you went and saw someone, you lost your clearance. So people would come and sit and informally talk with me about their marriages, about pregnancies, about medical issues, about things that you really couldn't talk about unless they were going to get reported. Mm-hmm. And I started thinking like, oh, I really do love sitting with people and hearing stories. I don't feel qualified. I wish there was a job where I could do this. <laughs> oh, well, I guess that doesn't exist. I'll just keep teaching and like doing my engineering stuff. And I really didn't know what therapy was or what it was for. Like I grew up watching TV and my only experience was when my parents went through a particularly rough divorce, I sat in with my mom's therapist and I did not like it at all. My experience was not good. And so like, I was like psychiatrist shrink or like family stuff that didn't seem so great. Like none of that really felt like what this was, which is really entering into story and being able to be a safe place that people felt like they could just be who they really were. I didn't know that those could be the same thing, that therapy could be that. So it wasn't for like another five or six years that I even considered cross-training into marriage and family therapy. Mm-hmm. It was through a friend that we actually met in Sunday school class at the church that we both went to, David, um, talked a little bit about what he did. And I was like, oh, Like, this is very dramatic, which I am, but it kind of felt like the skies parted and like a beam of golden light shone down on him. And I was like, that's what I'm supposed to do. That's it. Thank you, God. That's what it is. And so I went home that day and I looked up programs and actually used my GI Bill from the military to go and get my master's degree in marriage and family therapy. And I've been in that field since then, since 2009. Wow. Wow. Mm-hmm. That is so cool. And so since, you know, 2009, you've been seeing couples and families and mm-hmm. working with all kinds of situations. And yes. I'm sure that um, coming out of your own story with your own family and things like that, mm-hmm. that this had to help you also maybe make sense of some of the things that you had experienced in your own life as well, maybe in a yes. safer in a safer way. Mm-hmm. Yes, because I, I got to go in through my head first, um, and that felt so much safer to find a way to understand a bit more about the system. Um, but then I was able to go back and do my own individual therapy. Chris and I, Chris is my husband, we've been to couple therapy as well ourselves. I'm actually back in individual therapy again. You know how it's like a spiral, oh, yeah. you know, and we keep digging sure. deeper joke with my therapist all the time. I'm like, we're going to hit the middle of the onion at some point, right? Like, (laughs) does it just keep growing layers? Does it just Uh keep going? (laughs) Uh, Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's super helpful. Like I remember going through in every class I sat in, I was like, this is what I'm going to do. Or, oh no, this is true about me too. Like you can kind of put yourself into every situation and every scenario. And, um, I ended up going back and getting my doctorate so that I could teach, counselors um, in this field too. And I just, I mean, I absolutely just love it. I wish everybody had therapy or at least some sort of way that they could enter in and tell their story, you know, in a safe group of people. I just think that the relationship channel is the way that we transform. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Terry, is there a particular mode of therapy or maybe what are you of your top Maybe I'll ask you to pick your top three modes of therapy that you have found uh, most helpful in your work. Yeah, this so is such a good question. So many different flavors out there, but what mm-hmm. have you found 
real traction with with yourself and with the folks you work with. How nerdy can I get, Nate? <laughs> Pretty yeah, nerdy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like I'm such I'm such a big nerd. So the way that I think about different modalities is your modality is what makes your therapist feel comfortable so that they can really be with you. And they're all just different mm-hmm. entry points to get you to the same place. And mm-hmm. then for clients, it's like, where's the most comfortable sort of place for you to enter in? So I'm a huge fan of all therapy that helps us connect our experiential emotional selves to our behaviors and our like thinking brain. So the more logical pieces so that they're both integrated together. So I practice Mm -hmm. emotionally focused therapy. My specialty is really with EFT with couples, I would say is the gold standard. Mm -hmm. Um, The APA ranks that as the gold standard for couple therapy. And the reason is because um, even after in follow-up studies, like two years down the road, five years down the road, even longer than that, couples don't relapse once you hit a certain point in need emotionally focused therapy for couples. Once you are able to integrate all the different parts of you, you actually can become more and more satisfied years and years after therapy is over because you have the skills and the tools that you need to continue Mm. growing and deepening your bond. And I'm a huge fan of that, that um, as a good therapist, I should be working myself out of a job. I'm always here if people want to check back in, but I love that I get to empower people to go live their lives, that I'm with them for a short period of time and they can always check in with me, but they don't need me in their absolute everyday lives for the rest of their mm-hmm. life to be healthy. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's been a while since. Helpful. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Keep going. No, no, Keep no, going. no, no. <laughs> Well, um, for individuals, I would say too, like EMDR and IFS are helpful. EMDR is a a protocol for trauma in particular that can be incorporated Mm -hmm. within lots of different modalities and can be super helpful. And IFS is internal family system. It it talks about the different parts of you. So like um, I'm even thinking around sobriety and when we get into addiction, we're being able to talk about protective parts versus like little vulnerable parts the way that we manage things, you know, our reactive sort of selves in a way that's non-shaming that can mm-hmm. really invite um, full integration, I think are super helpful mm-hmm. too. Yeah. Wow. That, and Nate, go ahead and ask what you were going to ask. Okay. Yeah. Well, it's been a while. It's been a while since we talked about emotionally focused therapy and mm-hmm. I, I uh, and it's been a while since we talked about internal family systems. Mm-hmm. I wonder if you can just kind of give us a, a layman's, overview for those uh, listeners who haven't been with us for a while of, of what those two uh, modalities, how they, how they, their general assumptions and how they operate. Ooh, yeah. Oh my gosh, Nate. I feel like you just like slow pitched me a softball and I'm getting like my big metal bat. This is so exciting. (laughs) It's like the former teacher in me is so happy. Um, Like where are my gold star stickers? I need to start handing them out. Um, So EFT um, in a nutshell is looking at the security in your relationships. So like Mm -hmm. in a romantic partnership, it's these three questions, A-R-E, according to Sue Johnson, who developed this theory. A is about accessibility, meaning, are you there for me? Mm -hmm. R is the real key, which is emotional responsiveness. So when I reach out for you, do you respond to me? And then the E is, are we both emotionally engaged? So I'm not just doing that from my head and then keeping my heart separate from you. I'm allowing myself to be moved and impacted by you. And I'm being honest about the impact I'm having 
on you as well. Mm. So it goes in both directions. We can both reach and respond to each other. And we know that we can count on each other because we're doing it from an honest place. And that is such a gift. And and then that pours out into so many different other relationships as well. So that's EFT. We're looking at security. And the good news there is it doesn't matter what your history is, that for your entire life, cradle to grave, you can shift to secure attachment, no matter your story. Mm. And that's very exciting. So those of us that have trauma, it's not too late. You don't have to have just been lucky and won the lottery and been born into a perfectly securely attached family to have this. You can have this at any point in time, no matter what. That feels so hopeful. Yeah. 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 Since attachment is the issue. That's it. Uh, Exactly. Okay. And then like all of our reactions and protections and everything are really connected to our unmet needs. So instead of continuing to react or try to react better, we go back to the unmet need. And we try to figure mm. out what that is and how do we meet mm. it for you. Mm. Mm. And then the IFS um, therapy, Terry, would be explain with the inter- internal family system uh, work. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm a little less trained in this model. I'm certified in a supervisor in EFT. So I've got like years and years of training there. I'm not as trained here in IFS. You probably have people who know this a lot better than me. So with that That caveat, I can tell you in general, um, Dick Schwartz created internal family systems in noticing that there are different parts of us that respond differently to different scenarios. So like if I am standing outside and a weird sort of vibe comes over me because someone's walking by, the part of me that has had to come forward and protect me might show up rather than like the part of me when I feel super safe. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Um, the whole goal in that theory is to be led from your true self rather than from one of those parts that's either like trying to put out fires or trying to manage situations or always trying to be logical or the victim sort of part. Like you're trying to lead from the part that's your true self that embodies your values, that's like your adult self, um, so that you can directly interact with other people in a healthy way and not end up like, triggering yourself or, or getting harmed or causing any harm to other people to you. Mm, yeah. Wow. Mm-hmm. That's a wonderfully succinct uh, explanation of the basics of the system. Thank you. Thank you, you, you so You're much. a great teacher, Terry. You uh, really are. My cheeks yeah. are pink in a really good way right now. Thank you for that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So now can, can we talk about kind of the messiness that comes of, when we start to implement these wonderful systems into chaotic lives, into troubled relationships. So uh, let's say, hypothetically, let's say that there is a couple out there where we've got one partner is in active addiction of one kind or another. Uh-huh. Uh, uh, the other is, has become aware of the problem and its extent uh, is kind of vacillating between uh, heading out the door uh, mm. and sticking around, kind of ambivalent about whether they even want to stay yeah. in the relationship, right? They're, they're, they're going to throw a Hail Mary pass. They're going to call Terry. They're going to show up. Mm-hmm. And let's see if this relationship is salvageable. Yeah. Um, I, I imagine you've met a few couples that kind of Just fit a few. Yeah. Just a couple. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, and I'm sure that there are moments on the journey that 
uh, that follows in which one partner or the other is sorely tempted just to chuck the whole yeah. enterprise. Uh, yeah. What are typically kind of the high points and the low points that you encounter as you walk? I, I realize every couple's different and you're not going to yeah. generalize, but what are, what are kind of the, the common crises that you see and the, and the common realizations that people hit? What I love that you just said um, that I just want to like highlight is that it is a crisis. And so no matter if the addiction or whatever, like we use language like a competing attachment. Oh, um, there you go. Yeah. In EFT world, we would use like a competing attachment. So even if it's like video games or if it's a substance or if it's a process like sex or work, any of those things, if you turn out toward whatever that is to meet your needs or to soothe or to numb or to take the pain away instead of turning Mm. to your relationship, God, your partner, yourself, your friend, your family. Like if you're turning to a thing or another person outside your relationship and that's not an agreement inside the relationship, then that sets off a crisis inside the relationship. And Mm -hmm. um, what tends to happen then is there's a split That's kind of how I think of it is there's a point in time in which one person has the whole narrative and one person only has a part of it. Mm. And you're operating now in parallel time instead of with a shared cohesive narrative. And the partner who is turned out tends to feel like, well, we both are going through a thing, not realizing they're not taking their partner along with them. And the other partner tends to either not know or to feel like something's weird or I can't reach this person, but they don't really have the full picture. So can start to be reactive, might feel like things are crazy making. And what we would say is it starts to enhance this sort of cycle people get caught in where the more that I do one thing, the more it impacts my partner, then the more that they react. And then the more that they have a big reaction, the more that I go and do the thing that I've been doing. So let's just say there's a a partnership where one partner is in active addiction. The other partner is not in in any kind of active addiction. What may happen is the partner in active addiction is less and less tuned in to the other partner. I think it would make a lot of sense to kind of see it that way. Like you're managing your emotional, you know, issues and everything through a substance or through a process or through another relationship. So you are getting your needs met at least temporarily in a way and your partner either is not at all, or they are going to be protesting whatever's happening with you or turning out in another way to get their needs met too. So Mm -hmm. we're setting up this sort of dynamic where there's increased distance and a decrease in emotional responsiveness to each other. So let's say one partner goes, you know what, this isn't working actually for me anymore. This addiction, this turning out to substances and they disclose. So even if the partner disclosing has, you know, got a lot of support, maybe they're in a 12-step program or have disclosed it to like a pastor, a therapist, something, and are feeling good and supported. Even so, when they disclose to partner, um, there's a potential for trauma for Mm -hmm. either one or both. And it absolutely would fall under the umbrella of crisis, meaning my homeostasis is disrupted. The things that are predictable in my life are no longer predictable. And typically it's a great deal of, um, even if there's a lot of fear, there can be a lot of relief from the partner who has been suffering really with the addiction, with the turning out. 
Sure. And maybe hope that the other partner will be like, yay, you know, you're going to get sober. This is going to be amazing. And tend to be shocked that the partner often actually has the opposite reaction. Mm-hmm. Pulls right. away, withdraws, is negative, critical, starts questioning the story. You know, it's almost like that movie Inside Out where all the memories get touched by sadness and it colors them all blue. You can see oh, that wow. happen, that the other partner starts to question the whole narrative. It's almost as if it was like an affair. It can kind of feel very similar mm-hmm. in the room. Um, right. Right. Well, there's a like, third right. relationship, right? I that's mean, right. There's, that's exactly right, it. Right, yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, and, and, the question like why will come up often. And the truth is in crisis, we don't always know the answer to that. So trying to Mm -hmm. hold space for people to process, to get to that answer together is difficult early in therapy. It's difficult for the clients and it's difficult as a therapist to, to see people in pain, knowing that the only way out is through that. We're going to have to go into the story more and invite both people in. And a lot of times you're exactly right that the partner who finds out if they weren't ambivalent before many times they become ambivalent and sometimes even hostile in the disclosure in the finding out. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Sure. And that can feel so scary. Like, Oh no, this is why I don't share. This is why I withdraw. Mm -hmm. There's a high correlation too with addiction affairs, competing attachment and having insecure attachment strategies. It's like almost 90% of people have had trauma or attachment injuries in childhood developmentally or as they grow and then develop um, this sort of coping strategy of turning to substance or work or another person to cope with the loss, with the unmet need. Yeah. Uh, Terry, uh, maybe you can speak to this as well, but one of the things that I see a lot uh, with people together uh, in recovery as, as a couple um, Mm -hmm. is someone gets into recovery and they know that their behavior or their relationship to a substance or whatever it is, is not working anymore. And they Mm -hmm. are, um, you know, they're miserable, they're determined, they're desperate, all the things that, you know, precede that they get help. Um, they get into a program, they get, they get a little bit of clarity. Um, the anesthesia, you know, is worn off now enough that they're starting to see their life for what it is. And they begin to realize um, that their relationship in this in this uh, situation, marriage, whatever it is, um, they're not equals. Um, yes. They don't have a voice in their own life. They haven't. No. Um, they aren't um, met with um, the, the enthusiastic spouse that wants relationship. They, they maybe realize one day that they're married to a, a manager, you know, instead of, Oh, a, it's so true. And, yes. and, and so they, they sit here and go, um, yeah, I don't, I don't want to play that way anymore. This isn't working for me relationally. And it um, often calls out the other partner in their role that they may or may not be so excited to give up. You know, yes, and and so then the tension begins that uh, somebody kind of comes out with this idea that recovery broke up our marriage. You know, oh, I've <laughs> and, heard that too. Yes, yes, yeah. Can you can you talk mm-hmm. about that a little bit? Well, and it's it's pretty. It's so I feel very passionate about this. I'm going to hop up on my little apple box just Good. for a sec, just <laughs> for a sec, because I see this all the time. And what happens? This sound well. This sounds terrible. I'm going to say it anyway. Part of me wishes everyone could experience 
addiction or competing attachment and be kind of broken by it. This sounds so bad or trauma or Mm -hmm. something like that. Because what happens is when you lose all of that and you really can't turn to that and you really are faced with your own true self and the way that you respond and reach out. And there's this, there's this sense that happens like taking accountability, true responsibility, radical honesty, you don't protect yourself in the same way. I actually really love working with people in recovery, people who have had to take an account and make amends because there's no sort of posturing in that sense, if that makes any sense. Yeah. Where then a lot of times the partner who has been um, betrayed, offended in this sort of sense, what they, what they tend to do and I talk about this straight up with couples who go through this is there's going to be this sense that if you let go of your position of being right, of having the moral high ground, if you don't let go of that place, your relationship isn't going to be able to make the transition into mm-hmm. secure attachment because mm-hmm. that's just as insecure to be the partner that has to be in control, to be mom, to be responsible is a role that is not authentic, genuine and vulnerable. They had good reasons for doing it, but I see it all the time where that partner, the partner who was addicted when they get sober softens, opens up, begins to emote. I mean, you feel everything right. more. And then the, the other partner has more and more resentment. As this partner becomes alive, the other person can lock down mm-hmm. almost mm-hmm. in like trying yeah. to maintain homeostasis. And the encouragement here, the sort of gentle, loving challenge that I would offer to the partner in the other position, the position of not being the one that had um, addiction as a coping strategy would be um, what would happen if you did lay down this role? What would be the bad news? Talk to me about that first, because there are good reasons you went into that role. Let's honor and validate why you had to do that then. But we have to look at the present now. Mm Mm-hmm which is a different place. And that means that they are the ones that have to take the risk to move in closer to the partner that's now sober, mm-hmm. that both partners have to risk, both partners have to show up. And it's much more comfortable to be in the position where the other person is having to risk all the time. And you wait and sit back and kind of have a checklist and judge. Yes. Today you said this. Yes. You checked in with your sponsor. Yes. You took your medicines. Yes. You did carpool instead of taking the focus off their formerly addicted partner and tuning into self. Mm-hmm. That would be the goal. And that's the hard work of transitioning from crisis work, which is this happened to you, to moving to relational work, which is this happens to both of you. And you both are responsible to each other. And you both are responsible for what's happening inside. Mm-hmm. I, I have seen spouses so fearful of that, that they will even... Um, bribe the the recovering spouse with alcohol for something oh you know? yeah i mean like yes. well if if we would you know just do this i'd be okay with you drinking at the cookout if you wanted that's to. it that's you know? it i mean yeah. if you would just this for me i would be all right if you wanted to start having a glass of wine at night you know like almost completely blowing it up because they they are so fearful of going to that That's relational it. space. That's right. Anything that keeps them from having to go into that vulnerability because the the cost feels like it'd be too high. I wouldn't be able to take it. 
you know, I, I hear all of those different things from people. And sometimes what ends up happening is then the relationship doesn't make it if both right. partners don't go. And then I see the person in recovery go on to have healthy relationships in the future and the other person's stuck. And I don't ever want that. The hope is that both partners are liberated, mm-hmm. you know, that both partners are able to have a whole life, but it can sometimes like trigger justice issues or like it feels unfair. or I was the one harmed and all of that's true. Like we honor and hold space for that. And at the same time, there's no perfect partner, no perfect person, no perfect attachment strategy. We all mess up. We all make mistakes. We all have to take account for what we do and how we show up and what that looks like. And the difference here would be what would happen if in the moment that you feel yourself wanting to like pop back up and protect yourself. If you just named that to your partner, can you just say that to them? Like, Ooh, I find myself really wanting to criticize you and offer you wine instead of say, I feel afraid to go to this cookout with you. Mm -hmm. I just feel afraid. This Mm -hmm. is just brand new. Like what can we do together? And instead, you know, we control instead of come to this place of collaboration because it feels so scary and risky again. Like, how can I trust you again? Well, the only way to do it is to risk right? That's how we build trust is in the relationship, in the experience of it. If we never give the person in recovery a chance to behave differently, then how do we even know what we're making the decision based off of? It hasn't even happened yet. Right. Right. Wow. Wow. I love, I love, uh, the strategy of describing an addiction as a competing attachment. Mm -hmm. Uh, uh, boy, that is, that's, that, isn't that good? That's just, that's that's just fantastic. I can tell you that uh, you know I'm a recovering sex addict, so mm-hmm. you know the betrayal that my wife felt at the time of disclosure yeah. you know, was she was in competition with it, it, it from with me. It wasn't uh, an affair, but it was it was pornography and prostitutes. Yeah. Uh, when 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 people ask Allie. Uh, about, you know, miraculously, amazingly, I mean, our marriage didn't just survive, but it has thrived and we've grown closer and, uh, you know, we wouldn't trade it. We're actually grateful for the addiction these days. Allie, I remember the first time I heard her say this. I remember her, I heard her tell somebody that she and I are sinners in equal need of grace. Oh, yeah. Um, and I think maybe that accounts for how she was able to hang in. She mm-hmm. didn't uh, cling to a moral high ground yes. where by, by any conventional standard, uh, mm-hmm. her behavior against my behavior. I mean, <laughs> you know, uh, she had every reason to kick me to the curb, but it takes something to see, uh, uh, yeah, to, to, to abandon the moral high ground and engage as Wound, equally wounded, uh, equally gifted uh, people. Yeah. That's so beautiful. Well, and then you've got the space to get to come out of your shell and to try all the parts of you to be fully integrated. If you can only show up when you get it right, you know, Mm. then the message really is you're not fully accepted for who you are. If only parts of me can show up, which probably would speak back to all of us, you know, to where we would want to turn out to something else. If I can't turn in to my people with all that I am, I have to turn out. Like in my childhood, I turned to books, like books and science and research were my safe place. I have a picture of me as like maybe four years old standing, like I tiled my floor with books 
And that was my safe place. I would hold my stuffed animal and like sit on my books. And so what do you think happens to me today when I get unsure of myself? You know, my knee jerk response is to dive deeper into research, to get another degree. I have like a million (laughs) of them. You know, my husband's even like, please, you promise you won't get any more education. I'm like, I need to do more therapy to figure out if I'm going to get more degrees or not at this point. You know, that's what makes me feel safe, safe in the world. And so that part never goes away. But the cool thing about secure attachment is I have the option to turn to my books. But now I have a new option. I have a new option to also turn to my partner, to turn to him with the parts that don't feel so lovable that don't feel so acceptable and it feels risky still, but I know the chance that he will accept me and love me where I am feels so much better. I just never had those chances as a kid. So I didn't know what it felt like in my body. I was perfectly set up to turn out to other things. And every single time, a hundred percent of the time that I work with a client that has a competing attachment, when we go back into their story, they have pain. Yeah. And competing attachments have pain blocking effects. Like the same area of our brain that registers physical pain registers emotional pain, like rejection and abandonment. So analgesics like Tylenol, alcohol, depressants, psychoactive chemicals, all of those things work the same on emotional pain. So when my feelings are hurt, I can take Tylenol and feel better or have a drink Mm -hmm. or turn to a drug or whatever, temporarily it helps. The problem is long-term, it cuts off the real need. It's pseudo pain relieving. Mm -hmm. It's a false sort of sense of contentment and attachment. You know, I have so many clients who wouldn't consider themselves down on the addiction spectrum, but drink to, to socialize or have, you know, smoke something at the end of the day just to calm down. Well, I would say like in those places, what's the need that's not being met? Can we just get curious about those places? Let's just talk about it. Are there any other things you could do too, you know, that would really meet the need deep down? Have you gotten curious about your story? Like, where did this start? When did you start turning out? What was the feeling around? And usually there's like one or two feelings that we really don't like to tolerate that are hooked into some sort of bad story. And if we can have a new, better story, then it doesn't do the same thing in our body. Then we have other things that we can reach to, which is lovely. Wow. Wow. We don't take away someone's negative coping until you have a better coping strategy in place. (laughs) Mm -hmm. There you go. Mm -hmm. Uh And that, and that isn't performing for the other person to prove that's exactly it right i mean that's wait a minute let me stand up and clap my hands let me clap my hands to what you just said it has to come from the inside the calls coming from inside the house it has to be from inside Uh that's the difference that's the integrated change and it feels different there's no strings attached Mm -hmm. Uh, yeah sounds like we're talking about positive sobriety (laughs) (laughs) well i was just gonna say i this is so helpful because you've said so many really helpful things that if i could string them together and and um parse them out to the people and situations i have going on right now um this would be just some awesome prescription 
today. So mm-hmm. thank mm-hmm. you for um, so glad putting words to so much of what I'm experiencing right now. That That's very helpful just on a self-centered level right on my part right now. <laughs> <laughs> well, anything that takes the pressure off, anything that helps us connect and stay in relationship, I'm a big fan of. Mm, yeah. Wow, that's awesome. Terry, for those of us, uh, our listeners who might want to connect with you in some way, follow up, is there is there a way that they can connect with you and your work? Yeah, absolutely. So across all socials, I'm at Dr. Terry Murphy, D-R-T-E-R-I-M-U-R-P-H-Y, or you can visit my website, terrymurphy.com. Okay. Awesome. Right. Well, what yeah. a wonderful guest you have been. Thank you for Thank taking you the time so to talk with us. Uh, you both are so wonderful. I had such a good time. I, I don't know if you can hear my smile from here, but that was just wonderful. <laughs> Your smile comes through, Terry. It, oh, no, no question about that. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Right. Thank you so much well, for hope, having me. Thank you for being on. And listeners, stay with us. We'll be back in just a moment on the Positive Sobriety Podcast. We are back on the Positive Sobriety Podcast. And listeners, do you agree that Dr. Terry Murphy would be a great royal therapist to the family? Do you think so? Um, I I loved getting to talk to Terry and um, just hearing so much helpful stuff to couples. Uh, Because, Nate, I don't know. It's in the water. But um, I am dealing with uh, situations right now uh, that every single thing she said. I, I wanted to just uh, clip out yeah. and, and hand off. Um, she's yeah, so helpful yeah. today. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. It, and, uh, you know, what, what strikes me about this whole conversation and the applicability of her insights is that while every person is unique and every couple is unique, we are not as unique as we think we are. Exactly. And, right, yeah. And there are these kind of predictable dynamics. And if we are humble enough and maybe desperate enough to ask a knowledgeable guide for help, the odds are that there is some time-tested, accumulated wisdom out there that could greatly lessen our pain and help us move into a better place. And we wouldn't have to figure it out all by ourselves. That's why it makes sense to hire a therapist, especially, you know, to, 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 to call an experienced therapist. And it's also why, at least for me, um, you know, I have to get to a point of desperation. I, there is some kind of part of me, David, that really wants to figure it out by myself and not involve anybody else. Mm -hmm. I think there's, yeah, I think there's something in us that, uh, feels like that's noble or expected or responsible people know how to do this, you know? Yeah. Um, right. Yeah. 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 A- even though I've never seen this situation before, but Terry has seen it dozens of times mm-hmm. and she's seen what works and what doesn't. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 And, and being able to get people past their fear, um, you know, past all the, past all the sacred cows in the relationship 
the things yeah. we've agreed, sort of uh, unspoken agreements we've made with one another, not to confront certain yeah. issues, not to yeah. take on certain things. And then, uh, you know, one of us, lo and behold, goes and gets sober and blows the whole thing to hell. <laughs> <It's> just, <laughs> all the agreements yeah. go out the window. We're, you know, suddenly not as happy as we thought we were before when, you know, we were huffing the anesthesia and, um, yeah. But but yeah, it, it totally it takes everything into uh, into focus here when when we can when we can just call out these things and name them and and then say, OK, is this what you're feeling? Because that can't be that can't be what keeps you guys from moving forward together if that's what you want. If this is yeah, what you want yeah. this to be, you know, and yeah, everything that yeah. you've invested in. So I just, yeah, I, I think this has been a super helpful um, thing just for me. I, I even, I, I just benefited. Now for those of our listeners who, who um, are perhaps at the point, maybe we're able now just kind of nudge them off the end of the diving board and they're willing to commit to maybe therapy for the first time, some personal therapy. Uh, there are some options out there, and one of them uh, happens to be our sponsor. You want to talk a little bit about our sponsor, David? It is. BetterHelp.com is our sponsor, and it is a perfect opportunity for uh, folks to log on BetterHelp.com and slash positive sobriety. And uh, if you put the slash positive sobriety on there, you'll get a discount and we'll get to hear if these uh, resources are things you're able to take advantage of. But um, betterhelp.com is an online therapy uh, resource where um, over 500,000 people now have taken advantage of that. And you can get with the same therapist every visit, or you can have a different therapist every visit, but it connects you with someone who is uniquely qualified, licensed, and uh, credentialed to help you in everything from depression and anxiety to relationships, uh, whatever the things are that we would go to any therapist for, betterhelp.com is there to address with us. So um, wonderful thing in this time right now, it's a safe place. You don't have to deal with a waiting room or an in-person visit. Um, you can just go in the privacy of your own home. So uh, get with betterhelp.com slash positive sobriety and let us know if this is something that you've uh, found very helpful. Well, I hate to say it, David, but I, I do believe our time for this week is coming to a close. Uh, I so enjoy our sessions every week and I'm looking forward to some more that we've got lined up in the future. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, we've got some great, uh, great folks coming up. And you know what? I don't often say it, but I, I just a shout out and a, and uh, an expression of appreciation and thanks to uh, Rex Schnelli, who engineers this show. Absolutely. And, and does such a wonderful job of turning out uh, a beautiful finished pro uh, product week after week. Uh, believe me, I mean, the shows aren't edited, but they are. <laughs> <laughs> but they're put together and and polished in a way that uh, neither David or I could ever pull off. This is a team effort. We're so grateful to Rex. Absolutely, yeah. Rex is yeah. the uh, the thread that just pulls it all in and and makes it yeah. seamless. So we are so grateful yeah. for Rex. Okay, well, uh, I guess that's it for this week. Until next time, I'm Nate. I'm David, and we are your pals on the Positive Sobriety Podcast. 
The Positive Sobriety Podcast is recorded at Crossroads for the Nations in Brentwood, Tennessee. Live producer Rex Schnelli, music by Rex Schnelli, theme music by Matt Ulrich, uh, hair and makeup by Lyle Lovett, uh, wardrobe <laughs> by Kathy Gifford. 